This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'm, I'm pleased to report that I have returned in one piece from some adventures in Latin America, which I do hope to share with you, dear listener, as this program unfolds. I want to thank Mr. McMillan and uh, Heather Klinger, who together uh, put this show on the air as uh, scheduled over the past three weeks while I was um, occupied elsewhere. As I say, as this show unfolds, we hope to tell uh, tales of uh, dodging crocodiles, surfing, madman high-altitude driving in the Andes, and assorted other uh, tales. But let us begin this program, as we always like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 23rd of December. On this date in history, in the case of December 23rd in 1690, the English astronomer John Flamsteed observed the planet Uranus, but didn't realize its significance as an undiscovered planet. Credit for discovering Uranus went to Sir William Herschel in 1781, who originally thought he'd found a comet. It turns out that the seventh planet from the sun is just barely visible to the naked eye if you know where to look at the right time of year. It is and was, however, so dim that it uh, was not noticed by ancient peoples. On this date in 1788, Maryland voted to give 100 square miles to the United States federal government two-thirds of which are now the District of Columbia. On December 23, 1888, the Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, suffering from severe depression, mutilates the lower portion of his left ear with a razor while staying in France. The event is documented in his self-portrait with bandaged ear. On a happier note, on December 23, 1912, in the U.S. of A., Keystone Pictures released its first Keystone Cop movie, titled Hoffmeyer's Release. It was directed by Max Sennett. The silent film starred comedians playing a crew of bumbling policemen who bumped into each other and fell over each other in a frenetic sequence of slapstick gags. About a year after that, Keystone Pictures and Max Sennett were joined by a newcomer from Britain named Charlie Chaplin, who would shake things up even more. One year later, December 23, 1913, the U.S. Congress passed the Federal Reserve Act, which paved the way for the federal banking system, a network of 12 regional banks designed to, pr to provide resources to aid and stabilize the nation's other banks. And yes, in case you weren't aware of it, our banking system is and always has been in private hands, at least as far as the Federal Reserve System goes. We do have a Treasury Department, but uh, while their responsibility is to print and, uh, and press money for use by you and I, uh, the real control of the monetary system is in private hands. On December 23rd in 1928, the first permanent U.S. coast-to-coast -coast radio network was established by the National Broadcasting Company. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. On December 23, 1947, American inventors Walter Bretain and John Bardeen first demonstrate the transistor at a meeting at Bell Laboratories. 
The original device was later improved by William Shockley, and all three shared the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics. Not coincidentally, the transistor was the number one invention cited in the book Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions, authored by Alex Hutchinson, whom we interviewed on this program. That interview is available on our archives at radioparallax.com. It wasn't regarded as the number one invention in history, by the way, but it was the first one cited in the computers section, which started the book off. The transistor, of course, led directly to the microchip, which uh, has revolutionized modern life. And although it didn't happen exactly on this date, we'd like to note that it was on December 24th, 104 years ago in 1906, that the world's first radio entertainment program was broadcast. Canadian scientist Reginald Fessenden of Brant Rock, Massachusetts, broadcast a poetry reading, a violin solo, and a speech. This was the direct precursor to Dr. Andy Jones's Poetry and Technology Hour. And speaking of public affairs, we would like to note uh, that our public affairs director, Amber Yan, has now stepped down. Amber has been with us for the last couple of years and did a great job. She is to be replaced by George Sello, who hosts Sounds of Africa on Tuesday afternoons here on KDVS. And we hope to bring George on this program uh, really soon, perhaps later on this show. But if not, really soon. All right, our quote of the day comes from Jean Genet, who said, Worse than not realizing the dreams of your youth would be to have been young and never dreamed at all. Our quip of the day comes from the book Last Call, A Rise and Fall of Prohibition, which I'm currently reading by Daniel Okrant. We're going to try and bring Mr. Okrant on this program uh, sometime next year. In view of the fact there's going to be a Ken Burns special on the subject of prohibition, and Daniel Okrent's going to feature it in it prominently. And so far, this appears to be a great book. And we're really looking forward to getting him on the show, and I, and I, and I believe we will. And our quip of the day comes from, uh, from this book. It was from newspaperman Malcolm Bingay, who commented about the early implementation of prohibition by saying the following. It was absolutely impossible to get a drink in Detroit, unless you walked at least 10 feet and told the busy bartender what you wanted in a voice loud enough to be heard above the uproar. As I say, we're looking forward to that interview. And uh, our joke that it comes from George Carlin, who once said, Being a comedian, I'd love to see a production of Hamlet that included a drummer, so they could use rim shots to highlight the really good lines. Like, To be or not to be, that is the question. Our stat of the day, according to the Los Angeles Times, is that more high school seniors now smoke marijuana than tobacco. In 2010, 21.4% of seniors said they'd smoked pot in the last month. And I must say, from the health risk perspectives, that is probably a healthy statistic. Tobacco-related diseases kill 500,000 Americans every year. I'm not sure that any die from pot-related illnesses. That's not to say there is no morbidity associated with uh, the use of cannabis. We're pretty sure that if you know anyone who sits home watching Everybody Loves Raymond while eating Captain Crunch cereal, they are indeed, in their own way, a casualty of cannabis. (laughs) 
All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for bypassing TSA scanners after a New Zealand aviation company said it was nearing release of a truly usable personal jetpack requiring, it says, minimal training and no pilot's license. It's expected to sell for about $100,000. Now, I got to say, before you try and imitate George Jetson... You should probably do some basic math and the jetpacks, by definition, can only last about 30 seconds. If you try and add more fuel, they become heavier and you still only get about 30 seconds. Or something like that. It's very short, so (laughs) plan your trips accordingly. And it was kind of a bad week for murderers. Some weeks back, when the state of Ohio decided to impose a time limit on the last words of condemned prisoners. The new rule authorizing wardens to set, quote, reasonable restrictions on the content and length, unquote, of an inmate's last remarks was instituted after murderer Michael Buke apologized and recited the Hail Mary for 17 minutes before his execution last May. Yes, we have, some, we have some skepticism that all those extra Hail Marys are really going to help much under the circumstances. And finally, it was a bad week some time back for Brian Goatman Hopper of Encino, California. Mr. Hopper got stranded on a tiny desert island off the coast when his inflatable raft sprang a leak. Hopper spent five days there subsisting on plants and vitamins, it said, before he gave in and used his cell phone to call for help. Hopper explained, I was embarrassed. Said Hopper, a 54-year-old artist, I thought I could fix my boat and make it to land. I didn't want to spend the taxpayers' money to have the Coast Guard come rescue some stupid guy. Turns out, by the way, he was stuck on Roe Island in Susun Bay, north of Concord. And uh, for the record, we don't know how he got the nickname Goatman. There's no further mention of goats in the news item. All right, and from the Only in Japan file, we have the following item. According to The Economist last month, a Japanese politician told a joke that was actually funny, and that was enough to get him sacked. Justice Minister Minoru Yanagida was forced to resign for admitting that a big part of his job was simply reciting boilerplate. In a lighthearted moment, he said being Justice Minister was easy because he could always tell Parliament either no comment or we are dealing with the matter based on laws and evidence. The joke was intended to be self-deprecating, but the Japanese establishment was not amused and booted him out. Here's something I didn't realize in this story. Apparently for the past 50 years, Japan has been ruled by the Liberal Democratic Party. It handed power to the Democratic Party of Japan only this year. Which reminds us of that quip by Bob Hope we used earlier in this year, which was that no one party can fool all the people all the time. That's why we have two parties. And from the 
only in America file, we have this item. Apparently Fox News has hired a, uh, a hot blonde named Megan Kelly to be a news anchor. According to Greg Vase in GQ magazine, she said she never intended to become a journalist. Okay, let's have a show of hands. Who out there thinks that somebody that reads a teleprompter is a journalist? <laughs> in other nations, we hasten to remind you, as we talked about with Dan, uh, Daniel Shore on this program, they're called newsreaders. Megan apparently was the, the daughter of a college professor and did go to law school, but she began her career in broadcasting as an extra in an exercise tape. It was an abs tape, she said. I got paid one whole dollar to be backup girl number one. <laughs> no, we're not sure whether this was a, a credited performance. And she found law work kind of dreary, so said she decided to try journalism because it seemed like there was, quote, some nobility in it, unquote. In her opinion, there's nothing wrong with being hot. <laughs> it's a visual business, she said. People want to see the anchor. Well, maybe so, but I'm pretty sure Walter Cronkite was not chosen because he had good legs. And from the, we don't know why American trial lawyers didn't think of this first file, we have this item. A Spanish woman has filed papers staking an official legal claim on The Sun. Angeles Duran, age 49, states in notarized documents she is now the official, quote, owner of The Sun a star of spectral type G2 located in the center of the solar system, located at an average distance of Earth of 149,000 kilometers, unquote. Duran now seeks to impose a reasonable fee for usage of the sun's rays, with proceeds split between the Spanish government and the world's poor and herself. Anyone else could have done it, says Duran. It simply occurred to me first. We're pretty sure that no court of law is going to honor that one. Did discover something in my trip down to Colombia and Costa Rica I was unaware of. The World Court apparently awarded reparations to the government of Nicaragua for the U.S. efforts in the Contra War to destabilize their government. The U.S. did not like the decision and has never paid it. I discovered this reading the Tico Times, the English-language newspaper in Costa Rica. The Costa Ricans are currently miffed at the government of Nicaragua over an island in the San Juan River. They expect to take their case to the world court, and they expect to win, but the Tico Times noted that uh, several countries have ignored world court rulings, including the United States. In 1984, the court ruled against the U.S. government and in favor of Nicaragua over the U.S.'s illegal war on Nicaragua. The United States was ordered to pay reparations, but never did. Daniel Ortega continues to demand payment until this day. The Costa Ricans uh, don't really like Daniel Ortega too much. In another article in the Nica Times, a portion of the paper dedicated to news uh, coming from across the border in Nicaragua, said the following. In what appears to be a reaffirmation of the aging power-sharing pacto between President Daniel Ortega and former President Arnaldo Aleman, the two caudillos lawmakers said their minority party allies in the National Assembly this week voted to approve a controversial defense law package that critics fear will be used to militarize the country and convert Ortega's presidential chair into an autocratic throne. 
The caldillo, of course, refers to the traditional Latin American strongman. The article notes that with the support of 70 of 91 lawmakers, the Sandinista Front was able to ram its three-bill package through the National Assembly in less than 10 days, sidestepping the established legislative process that would have taken at least four or five months. Here's the part I like. The article by Tim Rogers goes on to say, the three laws which together form the legislative superstructure for a new system of state controls, similar to that of the U.S. Patriot Act, were passed without any serious analysis, consultation, or debate. Yes, that's right. In Costa Rica, (laughs) they're comparing Nicaragua rather unfavorably with the United States Patriot Act, an act which was similarly rammed through the legislative process without serious debate and in record time, and in fact, to my understanding, without most of the legislators having read the bill. They were told that our national security depended upon passing this bill in a big hurry, and I guess they went along with it, like a, like a herd of buffalo being stampeded off a cliff. Anyway, this correspondent cannot feel good about his, uh, his own government being compared unfavorably to that of a banana republic. Anyway, we'll have more to say about Latin America in the next two segments, I think. But let's round out our political discussion from words of wisdom from our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with the top 10 comedic news stories of 2010, which are not to be confused with the top 10 legitimate news stories of 2010. They are as different as lemon pledge and lasagna, Hawaiian shirts and linoleum, Christian scientists and health insurance salesmen. So here they are, the stories from this year that most lent themselves to mocking and scoffing and taunting. Number 10, Dick Cheney's sixth heart attack. How does a guy without a heart have six heart attacks? It'd be like John Boehner contracting a brain tumor. The man is so evil, hell keeps spitting him back. Number nine, Barack Obama. True to his word, the 44th president has managed to unite the entire country against him. Although the two sides do view his failures differently, the right sees him as Malcolm X and the left, Urkel. Number eight, Christine O'Donnell. The Delaware senatorial candidate claimed not to be a witch. Then the local Wiccan community denied having anything to do with her, which probably didn't make her election eve mailer. Number seven, Meg Whitman. Someone on Jerry Brown's staff called her a hoe and she went crazy. It's an insult to all women. No, we're pretty sure it was specific to you. Number six, Glenn Beck. Attempts to reclaim the civil rights movement by holding a rally on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Because isn't it about time that middle-aged, pudgy, white guys got a fair shake from society? Number five, health care. 2,700 pages long. Or 2,900. They're still not sure. A lot of stuff can happen in 200 pages. Hey, I've read Harry Potter. Number four, the TSA's new search policy. Number four, the TSA's new search policy. Just direct me to the agent who didn't volunteer for the gig. Number three, Sarah Palin. At a Tea Party convention, she criticized Obama for his dependency on a teleprompter while she had notes written on her hand, which is a fifth-grade teleprompter for people who can't read fast. Number two, George W. Bush's autobiography, Decisions Decided by the Deciding Decider, wherein he talks about how glad he is to be out of Washington. And may I say, sir, that makes 310 million of us. And the number one comedic news story of 2010, the BP oil spill. 
the largest pile of toxic sludge that hit American shores since Ann Coulter's latest book. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Thank you, Will. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.